1 Corinthians 4. And if you have a marker, you might want to put it in Acts 18, if you want to look there, because we'll be there briefly. But we'll again be in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been going through the gospel in this book. I think I have, for the time, exhausted uh, what we'll study together in chapters 1 and 2. So I move to the next reference to the gospel in chapter 4. It's not the heart of the text, as was more the case in chapter 1 and chapter 15, but there's still much that we can find. So my dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, let's consider tonight a result of the gospel when it is received. So let's pray. Father, as we go into your word this evening, we ask that you would again uh, cause us to look at what you've said and come to understand it and come to believe it and come to live it and all that by your grace and for your glory. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he addressed their problem of disunity. Just ten verses into the book, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. See, disunity in the church was an indicator of a lack of sanctification. Like many churches, the church in Corinth thought that they were mature believers. And they thought that, well, since we're mature, other people need to come up to our level. They need to come to hold our opinion. They need to be possessing miraculous gifts like us. And other people who don't have those things, who don't share our opinions, just aren't on the same level, spiritually speaking. And in the course of this letter, Paul will dismantle their reasoning and return them to basics about the gospel and about Christian living. And in doing that, Paul needed to address the relationship between the congregation and its leaders. Now, you recall that this congregation was split and their allegiance to different leaders, whether it was to Paul or Apollos or Peter or Christ. We see that in chapter 1. But in chapter 3, Paul points out that their strife, their division in the church, indicated their spiritual growth charts were lacking. They were still of the flesh. They were still infants in Christ. Chapter 3 says that. And instead of crediting God with the spiritual growth, they credited man. And indeed, God uses gifted people to build up his people. But the glory of God was being abandoned for allegiance to certain teachers. And so Paul reaches out to them warmly in chapter 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to you to, to your shame, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now tonight we want to consider how is it that Paul could address the Corinthians as his children? The answer is in verse 15. And then we'll see the reason that he pointed to this relationship in verse 16. So we'll consider these questions and answers and then highlight how does the gospel fit into this text. So first, let's consider 
how it is that Paul addressed the Corinthians as his children. Obviously, these were not his biological children. Instead, they were his spiritual children. But how? Well, the gospel received produced a relationship of spiritual fatherhood. Paul occupied a unique relationship with the church at Corinth. It was the Apostle Paul who was the one who first preached the gospel to the Corinthians. We find that story in Acts 18, of how Paul reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Gentiles. And his evangelistic work proved fruitful when Crispeth, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Acts 18, verse 8. Paul was the one who was instrumental in the founding of the Corinthian church. And he refers to that fact with two images in the previous chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the first image he uses is that of a farmer, where he says in chapter 3, verse 6, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Then he uses the image of the builder. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So when Paul referred to himself as their spiritual father, what he's doing is distinguishing himself from the other leaders of the church. Those we read of in verse 15, the countless guides. And obviously, many of those were very skilled leaders, and they were effective. Because Paul has just said, Apollos, water. Other people have ministered to you. But Paul's relationship is unique. And it was because of that unique relationship that he feels the right to speak to them. And Paul believed that he was worthy to be heard by them. And it's based on that point, on that argument, he then turns to verse 16. In verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 4, it says, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. So the gospel received produced a relationship of spiritual fatherhood. And Paul's argument then is that there needs to be a likeness to their spiritual father. You see, imitation is expected of a son. The saying goes, like father, like son. But historically, that is really the case, unlike what happens in wealthy America. In individualistic America, a child does not have to take on the family business. A son doesn't necessarily have to become a farmer like his father. But in less wealthy countries and other times, it was like father, like son. If your father was a farmer, you're going to be a farmer. And that's sort of the sense that Paul is making of this point. Those begat through the gospel preaching of Paul should resemble the Christian lifestyle of Paul. And when he says this, this is not overstatement or a misstatement. Repeatedly, Paul calls the saints by inspiration of the Spirit of God to imitate him. Let me read through a list of these. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Galatians 4.12, Brothers, become as I am. Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, You became imitators of us. 2 Thessalonians 3.9, We are a model for you to imitate. 
You see, the point is really simple. If you want to be like Christ, you must be like Paul. You won't be like Christ if you aren't like Paul. Now, that might seem a little bit strange, but just think about it. There are many things that Christ did that we must not seek to imitate, like performing miracles or dying to redeem sinners. Yet, through the life of Paul, we see how Christ was formed in a man and how Christ may be formed in us. So go down to the next verse, chapter 4, verse 17. 1 Corinthians, then. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. You see, Paul also led Timothy to the Lord. I'm sending to you Timothy to remind you of what? Of my ways in Christ. How significant are those? As I teach them everywhere in every church. So you have to follow Paul's example. He's a God-given example of what it means to follow Christ. Now, why did the Corinthians need that kind of admonition to be like Paul? Well, it was because of their spiritual growth being stunted by their worldly thinking. You see, when people receive the gospel, they come to faith with a whole lot of worldly thinking as baggage. That needs to be replaced. And to a degree, those in Corinth are similar to those today who celebrate and surround influential people. Some in Corinth had a following because of their personality, because of their persuasiveness, just as people today have a following. And that's what it's called, a following, because of their personal appeal. We call people today on social media influencers. We have celebrities. And just as is true today, people get all wrapped up in them. And consumed with their personality. They even argue about who's most significant. And that kind of thing even happens in the church. Yet, Paul has made this point through this book. And we have gone through it at length in our study. That his preaching wasn't compelling. People didn't listen to Paul because he had an electric personality or an electric presentation. They listened because the spirit worked through his plain statement of the gospel, and the Spirit humbled people so that they would call on the Lord for his mercy. And even so, Paul writes, imitate me. When he writes, imitate me, he still points to where the true power is. It's not in his personality, as if he is this great influencer that everyone flocks around. Instead, The real power is in the gospel. It's the gospel that created this relationship. And under inspiration, then, he points to himself to show what the transformation of the gospel looks like in his own life. So the gospel is the means of bringing people into spiritual relationships. Therefore, the concern must not be according to worldly wisdom that prizes personality and persuasion, The church must prize Christ crucified and Christ formed in us as it was formed in Paul. And as I look at this and I just try to reflect on it, it makes me always come back to the fact that the greatest spiritual work is done through what we would consider very humble means. The plain 
teaching of what God says. Through the prayer of the saints, not through what the world would consider great advertising or huge names or great systems or programs, it's by pointing people to the Lord. And it's true when it comes to coming to faith in the Lord and being born again. And it's true when it comes to growing in the Lord. Growing in the Lord is not dependent upon having the best and the brightest that the church can possibly offer. But instead, it's always pointed back to the plain teaching of God's word which will cause people who come to know the Lord to become more like the Lord. And I've reflected recently in church history, and I've just thought to myself, for years the church didn't even have a Bible they could hold on to, didn't have the printing press for so long. So they were dependent on on ministers for so many years, and if those ministers would share the Bible with them at all, in their own language. But God in his providence and wisdom, has sustained the church for all these years through very humble means, which is to show us the church is not dependent on the best and the brightest. It can actually be worked out through people like us, and God can build his kingdom with people like us. That's encouraging. It's really encouraging. Because the power is not in us and our personality. It's in the gospel and God's work in us through his spirit. Father, we ask that you will help us to consider these things and to again and again not to worry about um, how we come across, how we have to do everything. So uh, we have to have a plan and a strategy. But we are told again and again that we are to plainly state the truth, plainly answer people according to the scriptures, and pray that you would do work in their hearts. Obviously, we should love those we come in contact, love our neighbors, but may we not be fearful and may we not have worldly wisdom that everything has to be packaged in such a way that it will make the gospel effective when that's not the case as we read through the book of 1 Corinthians. And we pray you'll help us to trust what you've said and not the wisdom of this world. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.